Rethink Retail, the evolution of retail in today's connected world. Welcome to the Rethink Retail Show, your source for the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. Join host Julia Raymond, Global Director of Research at Valtech, a global digital agency focused on strategy and transformation in retail, as she explores the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. This episode of Rethink Retail, sponsored by Valtech, where experiences are engineered. Hi, and welcome to the show. In today's episode of Rethink Retail, I'm joined by my guest, esteemed author and retail consultant, Ian Shepard. Ian is the former chief operating officer of ODN, Europe's largest cinema business. He also served as the chief executive officer for Game Group, a pan-European retailer with over 1,300 stores. Now writing, consulting, and advising retailers, investors, and innovative startups, Ian has penned many of his insights in his book, Reinventing Retail. Ian, welcome to the show. Uh, Julia, thank you. Thanks for having me. Ian, you've held a lot of C-level positions with global retailing companies. Can you tell us a bit more about your professional journey and what inspired you to write Reinventing Retail? That's a great opening question. And, and I think that I would probably draw out two things from my background that probably to a certain extent define the perspective that I'm trying to bring to the work that I now do with retail and hospitality businesses and which um, really are the sort of driving engines behind reinventing retail, the book. And the first of those is that, strangely enough, I didn't grow up professionally in the retail sector. I came to retail relatively late in my career. I started my career as a, as a consumer marketeer in subscription businesses, in pay television and in the mobile sector. And that gives me, I think, a slightly different perspective on, on the levers that really matter in a business. And, and if I give you an example of that, in the pay TV company I, I used to work for, we sort of joked in a way that there were only three KPIs in our business that mattered. And they were how many customers do you have? How much do they spend with you every month? And how long are they going to stay with you? Because mm -hmm. crudely speaking, if you multiply those numbers together, you get some sense of the value of your business. What was interesting to me arriving in the retail sector was realizing that a retailer typically won't know any of those three numbers. So they'll know footfall, of course, but that's not a customer metric. They'll know things like basket size and transaction value, but those aren't customer metrics either because there are too many transactions are anonymous and they're not tied together into a customer record. And that has, you know, it's a fascinating kind of observation, which leads me then to spend quite a lot of time with retailers, just helping them wonder, how would you run your business differently if you did know that sort of detail about your customer base? And, you know, that's obviously, that's a route to loyalty schemes and data and analytics and some other topics that we um, you know, that we may talk about and that you talk about on this podcast with other people a lot. But, you know, it all starts from actually, do you know who your most valuable customers are? Because those subscription businesses that I talked about, typically, if you look at how they're spending their marketing budget, mm -hmm. are spending half of it on retention. So they're spending as much money trying to keep and nurture their relationship with their most valuable customers as, as they are on acquiring new ones. And yet, if you in a retail environment, don't know which of your customers is the most valuable customer, then you can't, in some senses, half of your marketing budget is not available to you. So that perspective coming from a subscription sector 
if you like, is definitely one of the things that I carry with me as I talk to retailers today. And the second is the second thing I try to bring to what I do is that, as you mentioned in your introduction, I have quite a lot of real boardroom experience in this. I've been the CEO of a publicly listed company. I've sat on private equity boards as well. And I've seen, to a certain extent, the good and the bad of that. I have the scar tissue as well as everything else that goes with that. And Game, uh, which was the retailer that I led, is a good example of that. I led that business uh, some years ago now during a real downswing in the video games market. And so mm. you know, what we saw was that despite lots of terrific people in the business doing lots of terrific things and working really hard. In the end, we had no choice but to put it through what in the UK is called administration. I suppose the analogy would be chapter 11 in the US. And we saw it emerge the other side of that, a fraction of the business that it had once been. And that's a truly horrible experience for everybody concerned. And so you wouldn't be entirely human if that didn't make you reflect a bit on what you might have done differently what the business might have done differently over the years and how it could have avoided ending up in that situation. And so that experience was definitely, that began the thought process that led to the book. I talk in the introduction to the book about a moment where I I sort of late one night after a very long meeting negotiating the future of the business came out. And my overwhelming thought was just, this should never happen to any business. And yet actually, as we know, in, on both sides of the Atlantic, it's happening to retailers with increasing regularity. That sort of driver, having seen, if you like, the bad side of you know, what happens to retail and hospitality businesses when things don't go well, was probably only accelerated by my more recent experience in the cinema business at Odeon, which was a sort of pan-European cinema operation, because there we were operating in a stable market. And so actually many of the same actions that we took at game, investing in digital, investing in data and analytics capability, investing in our colleagues and sort of experience as an employer. In some senses, we had the room and the time to make those things work and had a terrific run, doubling the profit of the business, but most importantly for the future of that business, transforming it as an employer from being sort of fairly lackluster third quartile employer to being one of the most noted employers in the UK. And, and again, the book contains many of those lessons too. So the kind of the yin and the yang, if you like, of the thought process that went into reinventing retail and indeed the thing that sort of entered my passion point, the thing that energizes me in the work that I do today is trying to make sure that you know, we learn as many lessons from other businesses, businesses like the subscription ones I mentioned, as we possibly can, and that we put big retail and hospitality businesses into a position where they can reinvent themselves and thrive rather than fading and being kind of driven out of existence by new entrants into their marketplace. Absolutely. It sounds like consumer marketing is at your core since it was part of the beginning of your career and you kept that with you when you went to work at these big retail companies and with them and realized how much they might not know their customer when they really should. Is that still a problem? A lot of retailers claim today that they really know their customers, but do you think that's still a huge issue? I think what we've got to do is dissect a little bit what we mean by knowing your customer, because the retailers that I see and work with, and I think that, you know, if I think about the people you've had on this show talking about their retail businesses over uh, over time, 
at one level, of course, they absolutely know their customers because any good retailer spends a lot of time in store. And if you're in store and you're talking to your customers and you're working behind a checkout and you know seeing the issues that they have and the things that they buy and the things that they say, then of course, at that level, you're going to know your business and know your customer. And so, you know, it would be unnecessarily insulting, I think, for me to suggest that retailers at that level didn't know their customers. But that sort of instinctive and human and person-to-person knowledge of the customer base is one thing, but it's quite another thing for a big multi-site, potentially multinational chain of retailers to know their customers at the level that allows them to do with that customer base what the subscription businesses that we were just talking about would do with theirs. So I often say that in a way, all the investment that big retail chains make in loyalty programs, in building big databases, in hiring an expensive chief digital officer to come in and do sexy digital things. Mm. All of those things really are, they're trying to make themselves more like the local mom and pop store down the road where you know it's the owner of the store who's working behind the till. That person instinctively knows their customers. They instinctively recognize their regulars, the people who are affect their most valuable customers, and they're able to do something about that. We lose that when we become a large chain of retailers. Things become more impersonal and customers in some senses become more a longer distance from the heart of the business. And so, you know, that's the sense in which I think many retailers don't know their customers. And so I'll often challenge a retail board by saying, you know, who's your most valuable customer? And they'll say, well, okay, let me draw you a diagram. It's somebody in this demographic with this kind of interest set who lives. And I say, no, 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 I don't, I don't want a presentation. I want to know the name <laughs> and address of your most valuable customer. Because if you don't know that, then if that customer stops buying from you tomorrow, you're not going to be able to do anything about it. It's at that level, which I think where I think, you know, retailers have both a big challenge ahead of them, but also a huge opportunity, you know, the payback in becoming a business that thinks about itself as how many customers do we have, how much do they spend, how long will they stay, can be profound. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like the larger the business, the, the bigger your scale, the harder it is to innovate and to get to that level of insight who are the customers that matter most to the business? Because if they left and you didn't know who they were, you potentially wouldn't even know where the problem is coming from if you started to lose big segments of the highest value customers. Exactly. When you are consulting and talking to retailers uh, that have huge global reach, is there a process when it comes to innovation that you typically recommend? Or how do you go about this? Is it small steps? Is it pop-up shops? What's the key? Generally speaking, if there's a flavor, I mean, every retailer is different and every market's different, but if there's a flavor to the approach that I try to encourage retail leaders to take when they're thinking about change and innovation, it's about taking small, easy steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, that The beauty of digital technology is that it needn't be that expensive. Uh, it, we've all made the mistake, certainly I, could, I would raise my hand, we've all made the mistake if we've been in retail leadership roles of signing off the enormously expensive investment in some big new digital platform that's going to take five years to build. And of course, what happens right. is you spend you spend millions of dollars building it. And five years later, you end up with something that looked like it was state-of-the-art five years ago, but has since been made completely redundant. The litanies of businesses have made that mistake. The reality is that I think the better approach with not just digital innovation, but with the idea of change generally is to experiment. So in, in 
a phrase that we've all used a million times in meetings is the phrase test and learn. Let's just try something and see if it works. And if it works, we can make it the new standard operating procedure right across the business. And if it doesn't, we'll just forget it and move on. But it's a very interesting phrase to conjure with when you're working with a retail leadership team because it's actually quite scary. You know, it has all sorts of cultural implications. It means that you're going to need to be a business that celebrates somebody trying something new, even if it mm-hmm. doesn't work. Even if it doesn't work, because if you want to be a test and learn company, you have to be ready to do lots of tests. Uh, and the whole nature of that is that some of those things will work and some of them won't. And yet there are many businesses where I was with a retail team a, a week or two ago, and I, I got a good laugh when I said, you know, doesn't it sound, you know, when you're a business where people would say, I'm really glad I wasn't working on that project because it didn't yeah. work. That's a cultural, that's not a symptom of a business which is going to innovate a lot. Right. The big F word, failure. It's a symptom of a business that instead is going to take a very cautious approach and people are only going to want to pile onto things when they know that they're going to work. So test and learn has all sorts of kind of cultural implications, all sorts of implications, for example, for your financial management processes. Because if I'm bringing the CFO an experiment and the financial process they want me to go through is, can you guarantee, Ian, that this is going to work? The answer is, of course, I'm, I can't guarantee it's going to work. That's the wrong question. The, the right question is the question a venture capitalist would ask, which is, how much is it going to cost me to find out whether this works or not? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a sort of risk capital way of thinking about your financial processes, which is quite a different way of doing it than most big companies are used to. So I think that for companies to get really good at trying new things and experimenting on new things, there are implications for their technology, of course, and that's where a lot of innovation discussion is focused. But there are actually all sorts of implications for the culture, for the processes, for the kind of people that you have in the business, for the attitude to risk that that, that business takes. And, and that's why, in a way, one of the observations that is right at the heart of a lot of retail discussion today, and it's right at the heart of reinventing retail is is the observation that big retail businesses are they're not just being driven bankrupt by other big businesses you know people are not just being driven bankrupt by you know amazon coming in and you know entering their sector they're also they're being driven bankrupt by tiny internet startups who start mm-hmm. with nothing who have no capital who have no customer base who have no credibility who do something that really connects with customers and the big company that was the incumbent in that sector sort of in some way fails to recognize that early enough and ends up, you know, that ends up having their revenue eroded and then they get into trouble and they put out a quarterly update that the city doesn't like. And then, you know, everything goes negative from there. But often it starts with the fact that the reason that the startup was able to do the thing that the big company wasn't able to do was simply because they had nothing to lose. They had no fear. They had no entrenched kind of revenue to cannibalize. And so it was easier for them to innovate. And so I think for you know, retailers who are looking to really build a kind of thrive, build, build a position that allows them to thrive for the long term, they're going to have to address this issue of you know, how do we become an innovation-oriented business in other than just writing the word innovation in in the set of values that we've put on the boardroom wall. You know, how do we actually make that real? Mm-hmm. And your take is very mirrors Harvard Business Review article I read just yesterday where it was talking about innovation. It said a lot of companies, once they become successful, and even in the case maybe of a DTC that blows up, that's when it's most important to innovate. Because if you're not always innovating, the next guy will come in and take your market share, basically. I gave a a talk to the leadership team of a retailer who'd best remain nameless, but a European retailer who 
And it was an interesting gig because they're actually, they're doing very well mm-hmm. and they're perceived as a winner. They're growing, their like for like revenues growing, their profits are growing, the city likes them, the share price is doing really well. The message I gave them was, that's brilliant. You know, you should totally congratulate yourselves. And most importantly, you should congratulate your colleagues in store for all of the effort that's got you into this position. The bad news is you've just made yourself the number one target for every startup and venture capitalist in the world because they're all looking at your sector and they're all looking at your brand and thinking, well, crikey, there's money to be made there, Mm -hmm. which means they're all – every – startup that's out there that's trying to raise money is now pivoting to look like they're in the sector that this particular retailer is in because it feels like it's a good place to be. And as a result, there's a wave of innovation coming down the pipe. And you know, the business that I was talking to is going to have to be either, it's going to have to be one of two things or, or both, which is it's either going to have to be doing that innovation itself and staying ahead of the game, or it's going to have to become the number one partner for all those startups so that it gets to cherry pick all the winning ideas before anybody else does. But if they only carry on doing what's made them so successful over the last two or three years, their story will not last very long. Mm -hmm. And you talk a lot about the role of the physical store in your book, Reinventing Retail, and a lot of innovation we're seeing happen in the physical store with smaller formats, with DTCs opening physical stores. What should retailers be thinking about when it comes to their store and the new economy? It's fascinating. Somebody asked me the other day, you know, is there even a role for stores for retailers now? And of course, the answer is absolutely there is. And if you want a piece of evidence for that, you just have to look at all the internet giants who are trying to open stores as mm-hmm. fast as they possibly can. And people talk a lot about Amazon and their their experiments with stores. But actually, even at the startup end, I was reading something about the all these mattress in a box kind of startups that are in the right, in Casper the, in the, and, yeah. exactly in the sleep sector now. And some of those are beginning to look for not they're not opening stores themselves, but they're beginning to look for space in established retail businesses. And and there's a very good reason for that, which is that if there's one single universal truth about e-commerce, it's that customer acquisition costs are really, really high. And you know, cutting through and connecting with customers is really difficult. And the store represents a great way of potentially doing that. But I think the key thing for anybody thinking about stores, including existing retail businesses trying to reinvent themselves, is to understand that whilst stores are important, the role of the store has changed completely over the last 20 years. 20 years ago, stores were essentially about product distribution. I use the analogy in in my book of of trying to buy a fridge. I'm old, so I, I remember when buying a fridge meant you'd go to the local electrical retailer and you'd look at all the fridges that they had for sale and you'd write down some specs and measure them. And then if you wanted to do price comparison, you had to go to another store and write down some more prices. And in the end, you'd, you, you would buy one of the fridges that was in one of the stores because that was essentially the only option that you had. Whereas today, I have the specifications of every fridge ever made available to right. me on the device in my pocket. Uh, I have all of the prices and offerings from every retailer for all of those fridges also on my mobile phone in my pocket. And so in that sense, I don't need a store anymore simply as a place to actually consume the act of purchasing a fridge. So if the role of stores used to be what I'd call distributive, you know, they were about distribution, they were about getting product in front of people, that's not true anymore. And so therefore, what a retailer needs to do is think quite boldly and quite fundamentally about what their stores actually are for. And there are great reasons to have a store in 
the market we're in today, but they're just different than they used to be. So a couple of examples, I've got six great reasons to have a store in the book, but if I was to give you a couple of examples here, you know, one of them is convenience. Sometimes I'm buying a product that I actually want right now. I want, you know, the chocolate bar, uh, the newspaper, the coffee. And of course, those are, if you're in a market where convenience and immediacy are important to your customer base, then stores are a great way of solving that problem. But the type of store that you're going to build to serve that need has very particular characteristics. It's going to be low friction. It's going to be fast. It's going to be well-organized. It's going to be because that's essentially what that kind of customer wants. In a different market segment, the role of the store might be about discovery and curation. So if you think about I don't know, soft furnishings and interior design, you know, you might fall in love with that throw cushion that I have in my store, but you might not have thought to Google it or look at it on a website. So some market segments, it's, you know, people need to stumble over and fall in love with products. And of course, the store that you design to deliver that is again, it has very particular characteristics. It's going to have to be beautiful. It's going to, stuff's going to have to be laid out really well. It's going to have to be kind of homely and, and, and show case product in the way that you want your customers to be seeing it. And that's just, there's a set of design challenges around that. And then again, in other retail sectors, there are stores where there are sec- product sectors where the fundamental role of the store is really about active selling. You know, a product might be complicated. It might be, you know, financial services. It might be selling a car. It might be something that people want to use credit to finance. So you might need to have an extended conversation with a customer. You might need to, you might want to encourage them to bundle products together or to upsell or to take particular tiers of service. And there, there you, of course, you need a store that's got brilliant salespeople in it, but that's also designed in a way that allows those conversations to happen. So each of those examples, and and there are more, I think, each of those examples of why you need a store drives a different store design, drives a different retail estate. You know, you want different stores in different places of different sizes, depending on which of those kind of journeys you're on. And so I encourage retail leadership teams that there's a... um, Finance people sometimes talk about zero-based budgeting, don't they? Which is, you know, let's forget all the all the current stuff and just start from zero and build it up line by line. And you can almost imagine a kind of zero-based store design process where you say, well, if we didn't have any stores and we were a pure play e-commerce company ourselves right now, would we want any stores? And if the answer is yes, what kind of stores would we want and what would we want them to look like and where would we want them to be? And let's start with that thought process. And it may be that the answer that comes out of that process is very uncomfortable because it may be that the answer that comes out of that process bears very little resemblance to the store estate that we actually have. And then we've got a tricky transitional thing to manage, both in terms of you know, which stores you have and also the, the kind of the physical layer and the design of the store that you end up operating. But not starting from that process, just trying to kind of justify the store estate that you currently have is a, is a is a road to nowhere. And so, you know, I think that, you know, this quite sort of fundamental customer-centric view of why have we got any stores and, and therefore what would a great store look like is a profoundly important discussion for retail boards to have. It certainly is. And I, I love the formats you gave. So you said convenience where it's low friction, it's organized. There's discovery and curation where people are stumbling upon, falling in love with products and then active selling like cars, which now is moving somewhat online uh, and then financial products. And it's interesting because we see disruption. I just saw on the news that Bose is closing the majority of its retail locations across the globe. 
And there is a change because it used to be more about active selling when those products were very technical 20 years ago. And now it's not the case. They can go through other big retail chains and partners. So is there some of this happening when we when we look take a step back and look just at the UK market? Are there trends you're seeing that are impacting some of the changes with physical stores? The UK, I suspect very like the US is in the throes of demonstrating very clearly that if you have a purpose for your store and you're single-minded about delivering that purpose, you will do well. And if you don't, bad things will happen to you. And so we're seeing in the and the grocery sector is a really interesting example. If you look at the Christmas trading results that have come out from this just this last few weeks, I, I think I'm right in, in remembering that the two fastest growing stores that sell any kind of food and drink product were sort of little on the one hand in the very much in the budget economy kind of grocery sector and Fortnum and Mason, the department store on the other end, who are a you know traditional high-end business, but you know, very well run with a lovely store and a lovely website. So the people who are getting finding it tougher, I think, were the people who were kind of in between. And that's partly that's about you know, it's easier to stand out if you're at one end or another of a polarization, but it's also about what we've just been talking about in terms of the role of the store. And and more generally, if I look around the UK high street, there are niche specialists with, you know, on the face of it, quite a narrow product proposition where you think, well, could, could you justify a store estate just selling chocolate uh, or just selling soap? But there are niche specialists who are executing in both of those sectors, for example, so well that they are seen as runaway successes on the high street. And at the same time, there are retailers with a slightly more general, you know, we do a bit of everything kind of position. And and here I'm thinking particularly of department stores Mm -hmm. um, who are having a massively tough time justifying why they exist when in some senses you've got if as a department store if i want to buy a camera in a department store you've got a narrower range than the specialist uh, and a higher price point than the internet warehouses and so you're sort of stuck in the middle and they're really struggling with that so i think yes that the, you can completely clearly see and I, I bet the same is true with the retailers that you know you and your guests are talking about from a north american point of view so regularly that you can see that single mindedness and clarity of purpose and that translating into great retail execution and on the other hand uh, those retailers with you know who are a little bit more in the middle who have slightly less clarity about what their stores are for they're finding it very tough mhm absolutely we had a guest i think it's carl boutet who coined it the boring middle and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And it reflects on the struggles that big department stores are facing. Um, and they're trying different strategies, like more private labels and, and things like that, too, and different partnerships, right, and store and stores. And one of the things that we've debated, especially on this side of the pond, but also probably in the UK and the European markets, is the role of flagships, And the traditional notion of flagships is being questioned. We actually played a game at our recent dinner in New York for the National Retail Federation's big show, and it was fad, hype, or real. And one topic debated was flagships. So I wanted to hear your take as a retail veteran on, is this role changing is it fad? Is it hype? Is it real? What a great question. I'd be, I wish I'd been there to uh, play the game and hear what everybody else said. But I think 
I always have an instinctive note of caution when people start talking about flagship stores because <laughs> it's a very, very thin line between this store will represent our brand and really establish us on the kind of UK map on the one hand. And then on the other hand, actually, can I just have an excuse for signing a really expensive lease and opening a store on Oxford Street or, or Regent Street in London for kind of almost vanity purposes? And so I think that you know, I wouldn't want to condemn all flagship stores because some of them are really lovely. I think I would challenge a retailer who wanted to open in one of these kind of really AAA, very expensive shopping areas in London or in a European capital of some kind. I'd really challenge them with why are you doing that? And I think that, you know, there, there's an argument to be made that, you know, you could see your flagship store as a place to experiment, as a, as a home of innovation, a place where you're going to be brave and try new things. And that I might be persuaded that that was a good reason to do it. In some sectors, I guess, in very high-end fashion, you can argue that there's a sort of PR benefit around having your brand associated with being in those places. But mm-hmm. uh, if I walk the two principal kind of high-end shopping streets in in London, you know, Oxford Street and Regent Street, and I look at the stores that are there. I'm willing to bet that every one of those is described internally in the in that retailer's um, head office as a flagship. Right. Um, and I would say a very small proportion of them actually are. So would you say maybe it's the PR play? It's the idea that for vanity purposes, they could have a store there, but sometimes they don't put the investment that maybe that kind of location um, should be getting. You're walking a very narrow tightrope if you're going to open a flagship store, because if you put a load of investment in and do things in that store that you haven't done anywhere else, then you're vulnerable to somebody saying, well, what's the point of that if none of that stuff is transferable into your store estate and this store represents half a percent of your sales? What, mm. what was the point in putting all the money in? The flip side is if you open a store in a very expensive location and it's exactly the same as all your other stores, it's by definition just going to be less profitable. And so I think you have to you have to have a, I think you, a fairly cynical eye on this and say, well, let's just be really really clear about what we're doing with this and and, and why we're doing it. And as I say, in some sectors and I think for some retailers in terms of the way they execute in their flagship stores, I can sort of in a sense grudgingly see the benefit for them of doing that. But more often than not, I think it was just, we really want to have a store in on Oxford Street. Sure. Fifth Avenue. Exactly. Yep, exactly. Same same concept. And Ian, I wanted to ask you, because of all of your years of experience, there's a lot of new technology. There's a lot of talk of machine learning, AI. What technology are you most excited about personally when it comes to retail as we have entered this new decade? Yeah, well, crikey. I think the I get most excited about the stuff that's most basic, to be honest with you. So, mm-hmm. you know, what what do retailers need to do to really thrive in the environment we're in now? It's, you know, integrating your channels together. If I want to buy a product from you online, but then collect it in store, you should obviously enable me to do that. And if you're going to enable me to do that really well, you need to take an important step in terms of your logistics platform, which is you need to be exposing store level stock numbers back to the website so that I can tell whether my local store actually has the product in stock already or not. You know, if you're operating stores and you don't have the size of shirt that I'm trying to buy in stock, it should be utterly obvious and utterly seamless that you would place a web order for me and have the product delivered to my office or to my house as quickly as you possibly could. And yet, I think, and and you know, look, we may be behind you over here on this side of the Atlantic, but I see a lot of retailers where those apparently very basic things are still really not happening. And actually worse, sometimes I see retailers 
where the technology is in place that would allow those things to happen. But the business processes and the training and the incentivization and the motivation to make those things happen are not in place. So, um, you know, I, I was with one retailer before Christmas um, looking at stores and it became apparent as we went round that in this particular business, stores are penalized. They have their revenue target deducted for returns that they take, but that would include returns that were being taken for sales that were made online. And so a small store could see its ability, you know, work really hard and then see its ability to deliver its targets absolutely wiped out by a wave of returns coming in from web sales of products that that store didn't even range. Um, And you can imagine, I don't need to tell you what that does to the attitude of people in the store to returns. You know, are they delivering a great service when you walk in with a big bag full of stuff to hand back? Well, I'm sure they're doing the job, but I bet they're not that enthusiastic about seeing their KPIs hit in that way. So there's an example of, you know, the technology exists, the process is not that difficult, but somehow the the end-to-end bit of the business has not been glued together. And it is it is absolutely the case that you know, one of the defining characteristics of retailers who are being successful in these very difficult times is that they are delivering that seamless, omnichannel, integrated offering um, to their customers. Uh, and the converse is true that, you know, the, the people out there who are who are not able to do that are struggling. One retailer in the UK, who again at best remain nameless, put out a profit warning recently. Mm. Um, and you know the trading is tough and profits are down. But I read the small print and in the small print of the profit warning, they proudly announced that the systems upgrade, which is going to allow them to do click and collect, click and collect for the <laughs> first time is going to happen sometime this year. Yeah, what, have you, what have you been doing for the last decade? You know, it, it, it's kind of, but that speaks to a, you know, where we started, which is talking about that culture, the attitude towards innovation, the attitude towards technology change, the attitude towards experimentation. And it also speaks to the customer closeness piece that we were talking about as well. Mm-hmm. So so I get really excited about people just doing really basic things well. That for me is the place that you would start. And I, I would cheerfully throw fruit at any retail leader that wants to stand up and talk about blockchain, um, <laughs> uh, hasn't integrated their web and their retail channels in the way that we've talked about. I mean, here's a classic example. You know, if you walk down a major shopping street, a Fifth Avenue or an Oxford Street, um, and you start buying products, maybe you're on a day out with your family or your friends, and you start buying products in stores, you probably, after a while, don't want to carry all those shopping bags around with you. I can attest to that because I just did that in New York. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so name one of the stores that you shopped in on Fifth Avenue that would offer to deliver that product to your house rather than making you carry it out in a bag. I... Yep, I can't think of any. And I bet somebody does. You know, you'll get you'll get letters about this. Somebody <laughs> will email you and say, "Well, we do that." But you know, that, what a in some senses basic aspect of omnichannel retailing that is. And yet here we are saying, "Well, I can't think of anybody." So I, I think that you know that some of this basic stuff I think warrants a look before people get too excited about new things. The other thing I I then get very exercised about, and here this is a purely comes back to my origins in subscription businesses, is the whole piece about data. So you talked about machine learning, and you know these are tools. I mean, they, they, I think artificial intelligence and machine learning are cursed with names that are too sexy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people talk about them too much, and 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 conferences happen, and filled with people who don't really know what they're talking about. But the reality is the discipline of understanding the data in your business. Where are your products? How quickly are they selling? Where is your stock? 
you know, who are your customers? Who are your most valuable customers, as we were talking about before? And what is their behavior doing? Those disciplines, there's enormous value in there. And I think there's still, there's great grounds to be made, I think, for many retailers in both understanding the data they already have and putting themselves in a position where they get more and, th- and then getting good at using some of that tool set to really understand it. Um, it comes, it's second in the priority order after getting click and collect finally installed. Uh, but but it's still, I think those are, there's some really, really important things there. And there's a danger for those of us who kind of observe and comment and write about retail that, you know, you're constantly chasing the next thing mm-hmm. and the next thing and the next thing. And actually the industry at large hasn't caught up with the thing from 10 years ago yet. So I think that for retail is in a practical sense, there's just a huge amount to go for. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of work to be done indeed. And Ian Shepard, it was great to hear from you today, author of Reinventing Retail. For anyone listening, where could they go to get your book? Uh, well, I think it's, it's available uh, on your side of the Atlantic, sadly, mostly from online retailers, which is an irony that I will leave uncommented. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. I know you're on Amazon, so that's there's it. always that. Yes, absolutely. Great. Well, thanks for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you. Bye now. You've been listening to Rethink Retail. For all the latest news on commerce and trends, join the discussion, rethink.industries.com.